if you look at the actual numbers, restaurants don't fail any more than any other business. Problem is, is when they do fail, they hit hard because there's a lot of money that goes into it. You lose money along the way. And then when you fail, you still have a leash yet to keep paying. So you hear more about failures in restaurants than other businesses, especially service businesses. You could fail and then just, that's it. You just turn off the spigot and all the people go home and that's it. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Sparkling Water, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. No Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Randy Murphy, the founder of Mama Foo's Asian House. Yes, Randy has managed to take a small three-location business and turn it into an epic 26-location mega chain. He's done this using a bunch of tech and a fresh approach on how to run a restaurant. Furthermore, he is a white guy in Texas. It's really, really impressive. Most of what you're going to hear, you're going to be thinking we're talking about scaling a tech company not actually serving someone an Asian dinner. So from his delivery and customer support technology, data lead analytics, and even having his centralized call center to take orders, Randy's done a lot of really interesting things in this industry. So if you've ever wanted to learn about scaling a business, you'll love this episode. In this conversation, you'll enjoy three major things. Uno, Randy's secret sauce to highly profitable businesses. Number two, why the failure rate for restaurant businesses don't add up and why most of them fail. And number three, Randy's most important question that he asks all his employees. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more knowledge desserts along the way. Before we jump into the conversation, go subscribe to AppSumo.com. If you're on your phone, just do it right now. It's free newsletter featuring exclusive software deals to grow your business. Do it right now. AppSumo.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Rose Plenaire from the Netherlands. She left her iTunes review saying, Episode 90 brought me to want to find out on Google how to give you five stars. Thanks for the episodes. That was such a cool review. Thank you, Rose. I really appreciate it. You're the best. If you want a shout out in a future episode, just go leave an iTunes review. I check every single one of them. I think what I was reflecting on was, I was like, what have I always done that I like to do that I can just keep sustaining? I think that's one thing in business. I was talking about diets, but I guess it's business too. Like, how do you do a work that's sustainable? Meaning yeah. that like, I can continually do this for six years or 20 years or 50 years. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I've always kind of come back to is just like promoting other people. Like, it's not even other people necessarily, just promoting things I like. Mm -hmm. And so now I got to meet you through Kurt. I was like, I like this. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I wanted to come back and like chat with you about your stuff. Sure. Interesting. What were you saying just about restaurant businesses? Like they're always going to be around? Yeah. So retail is changing as we know it, right? So uh, bricks and mortar is changing and it's not as valuable or it's not as prevalent today as it was five years ago. And it's going to be even less in five years and it'll be more very boutique-y type shops because of the fact that commodities are now much easier received from companies like Amazon, right? Easier to order, don't have to leave your home. You get it in two days. You can return it easily, things like that. So companies like Sears, JCPenney's, Target's now starting to really cut back. Uh, Walmart, I think, will always have a little bit of a niche, to be honest, from a cost standpoint. But products and goods are commodities. Yeah. And technology is enabling that commodity to shift more online purchasing. Food, I don't think we'll get there anytime soon, only because for a variety of reasons. One, people don't want to order two days in advance to get their food in the mail, right? Number two, people want to know where their food comes from. And three, food, people are very brand loyal, brand specific. So it's a very different dynamic. So a lot of investors who've traditionally put a lot of money in bricks and mortar retail, they're moving now into the food side and investing there, which is then pushing up valuations because the, for 100 years, these families, brokerage houses, whatever, that's what they understand. They understand multi-unit retail economics and everything associated with it. Well, there's not a lot of retailers out there that are killing it. Very few. Most of them are shrinking, shrinking their box, shrinking their footprint, going yeah. out of business, whatever. 
it's interesting. We're seeing that right before our eyes. I mean, it's like the newspaper phenomenon is happening right now to retail as we know it, it but it's happening so fast, right? People yeah. don't realize it. But food, it's not practical for food to happen the same way. I'm curious your take on that with like all the online send food in a box. Have you seen all these services oh, sure. like yeah, Blue yeah. Apron Blue, and Green sure, Chef yeah. and yeah. Plated? Yeah. Like, what do you think about those? I think there's a place for those, right? There's a place for our type of made to order entree for you. There's a place for go get it at your grocery store, CPG. But there's also the convenience aspect of, hey, just send me the ingredients and I'll cook it. Um, and then the fourth, you know, uh, thing would be some a hybrid between it. So something like a a snap or MyFit Foods, which now just went out of business, obviously. So the, kind of the pre-made refrigerated meal that you can go get anytime and then you have a two days shelf life. So there's all these different ways to get it because less and less people make scratch meals from home. I think there's a, a big market for all of that out there. Well, besides your guys, Mama Foo's, what's your guilty place of eating? What's your like guilty favorite of fast food? I'd say probably Chick-fil-A. Yeah, that's because that's probably the place we would take the Chick-fil-A or P. Terry's. Yeah, okay. Those are really the only fast food places <laughs> we would take the kids, you know. I love Taco Deli. Uh, that's probably oh, my favorite. Yeah, dude, all the time. Yeah. I've been trying to invest in that place for twelve years. Oh yeah, they yeah they have a real tight little group there. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I, I think what I admire about their business is that they're so slow. Mm-hmm. Like they're the opposite of what you read in every magazine. Like Fast Company, their favorite magazine is probably Slow Company. Yes, right, which yeah, is really yeah. appealing because they're like, oh, yeah. we're we're slow, we're, we're intentional. We just want to launch like one store. We want the quality to stay consistent. Yeah. I actually feel like I hear that all these restaurants fail all the time and the margins are so small and all this stuff. Uh, I guess with Mama Foods, like how did you approach it differently? What are you guys doing differently that you're surviving now thriving, growing to 26 stores almost? Yeah, we had 26 now. We just opened our 26th and we'll have at least six more this year, calendar year that will open. So there's a couple things on that. There's some truth to restaurants fail, right? But there's also a lot of falsehoods to that. If you look at the actual numbers, restaurants don't fail any more than any other business. Problem is, is when they do fail, they hit hard because there's a lot of money that goes into it. You lose money along the way. And then when you fail, you still have a leash you have to keep paying. So it's financially very difficult, right? So you hear more about failures in restaurants than other businesses, especially service businesses. You could fail and then just, that's it. You just turn off the spigot and all the people go home and that's it, right? There's no product. There's no bricks and mortar in some cases, right? But in also the, the restaurant business, there's two sides to it. There's the independent operators, right? So that's the, the Red Ash downtown or, or La Condesa, something like an independent, single, typically single unit operator backed by somebody who has capital or maybe some experience. Then there's a multi-unit operated chain, whether it's franchised or non-franchised. Multi-unit operation has a less of a failure rate than non-multi-unit operation. And franchising has less failure rate than non-franchising because people, they employ leverage and technology and marketing and branding and it kind of offsets some of those risks. There is a high failure rate in independence because a lot of times people go, I like to cook. I'm going to go open a restaurant because it's kind of a rock star thing. Problem is, is they don't understand the business side of it. And there's a lot of restaurants that do high volume that go out of business because they're not operating the business. They're operating the restaurant. And that's a big problem. You really have to operate the business. So what we've always said is, hey, look, we're going to grow fast, but we're in it for long ball, right? So we're not looking to hit a home run right now. We got to put the infrastructure in place so that we're hitting a home run in three to four years from now, right? And so we've spent a lot of time putting in operational infrastructure, technology infrastructure. We've just finished an entire new marketing infrastructure capability, and we've kind of taken it on in pieces and financial infrastructure. So for data flow and ability to minimize GNA as we grow. Typically, a company that's grown as fast as us might have 30 or 40 people above store, and we've got about 26 to 28. Above stores, the people running like operations that are not in the restaurant? Exactly. Yeah, it's marketing, it's finance, it's technology, it's operations, food and beverage, supply and distribution, HR, things like that. And then, of course, the executive team. So our approach to it was, let's get private investor capital, let's build a great brand, let's really 
nail down the prototype, the menu, the, how we want to serve the public, where do we want to put these things, how big is the footprint, you know, all those things. We've kind of gotten all that behind us now. Now we're growing. We've proven it in Austin. Now we're trying to prove it in Houston, which really just started, just launched it. We've got about six locations there. It'll take two to three years, you know, to get our stores and a new market to maturity. And so really the goal is we've done a lot of that heavy lifting already, whereas some companies our size they kind of go from the seat of their pants to get to 25 units. And then when they place private equity at that point, they put in the infrastructure. Infrastructure, what do you mean? Your call center thing was, I feel like no one gets that. Yeah, absolutely. So the call center is a big part of our infrastructure because it does a lot of things. A, it answers the phone. B, they're kind of the eyes and ears and traffic cop with people calling our stores and knowing what's really going on in your stores. I mean, typically, if you're in the restaurant space and you've got multiple units, you get a report at the end of the day of how things went. Well, unless you're answering the phone yourself, you really don't know how things went. We do because we answer 90% of the calls from this office, right? So that helps in a lot of different ways. And now we're giving them better visibility tools to quote a better quote time like on a delivery, which is a third of our business. Up until today, because it's over the next week or two, we're launching KDS, so Kitchen Display Systems. What's that? It's a tool that allows us in the store and out at the call center to know how long it's taking to put an order in to get it out. We can track all that now. And we couldn't before, And which is not that logical, but it, what it gives us is instead of guessing that our downtown store isn't busy, but it really is, we quote you 45 minutes, the delivery gets there an hour and 15 minutes. You're upset. You're not ordering from us again. And all we have to do is just get visibility to how long ticket times are to be able to have a better quote time. So it's infrastructure like that. The call center is a big part of it. And they have an interface where they put orders in that are integrated into our POS. So that's another layer of infrastructure that we put in place. And then now we have a logistics piece too. So in the future, when you get delivery from us starting late March, you'll get a text that says, Noah, we're on our way and click here to see the car coming to you. That's a great feature and it's a kind of a bell and a whistle, but it's huge for us operationally. I, right now, 67% of the calls that come into that call center are orders. I want it to be higher than that, right? I want to maximize the order per call ratio, but I can't do that if I have other calls coming in. They're like, where's my food? Or, hey, you're, you're oh, you know, things like that. Because they're going to still answer all those calls too. But if I can give you the way, the ability to see, okay, now I know my food's coming. It's right around the corner. Oh, he's stuck at that light. I know he's four he's minutes away. Soon, yeah. You don't call the call center, right? So that frees up another call that could be an order versus totally. so I can reduce the staff or, or not grow the staff as much as I need to grow stores, right? And so that's another layer of infrastructure. Those are some of the technology things. We have a big financial infrastructure as well. So we're great planes as far as our GL, but we have a middle layer, our general ledger system, so our financial package. Okay. We have a middle layer that sits between our point of sale, which is Aloha, and Great Plains, which is our GNL, which is called C2IT. And C2IT is our back of house solution, which allows us to do EDI interface with our vendors. So we get multiple trucks per week per location of all of our product that we sell. Everything's made fresh to order. It's an administrative nightmare to take all that data, yeah. key it in, make sure it's right, and you have to work back, manage your inventory, all that. Well, we have an electronic interface that sends that through C2IT to our- And they just know when to come? Yeah, we have a set drop day or drop time based on what truck it is, whether it's linen or produce or poultry and proteins. And so what it does is eliminate the needing to key all that in, which is huge because we have to inventory. Uh, we inventory twice a week. When you're 
counting and you're counting off of a truck manually and then inputting it and then you're going back against that there's so much room for error totally yeah and so we have automated all that so we automate our inventory we automate all of our payroll so it takes our payroll information out or our hour information employee information puts it into paycom so that's an automated process as well with checks and balances this is insane yeah and then sales as well because we got to take all those sales information and put it into our great plane system as well so it automates a lot of that which is awesome but then we also have Miris, which is a restaurant-related business intelligence tool. We use that on a week-to-week basis, month-to-month. Trends, um, we, it's an ad hoc tool, so we can find out a lot of information. It's not as much what it tells us daily as more that it allows us to mine the data. Anything interesting that you've seen or what's... When, when That's right. What's moving, what's not moving. If we did this, what would happen to sales or costs? You know, things like that. We could do yeah. predictive stuff. So that's another very big capability. We're in the process right now of, from a financial side, finishing a... This summer, we're doing an audit. We're doing a 409A evaluation. We're converting to GAP. These are all things that usually don't happen until you get a lot bigger. But we figured, let's take that time and cost and let's get that done now and grow much easier. And then when private equity comes in, let's use the majority of that money and go build more stores, You know, not have to put in an infrastructure when we've got 50 stores already or something. It's much harder to put in infrastructure when you're above 25 stores and when you're below. Well, I think just in general, I love how you guys like set up infrastructure, keep optimizing it over and over. Like your call center thing you mentioned earlier, like, you know, I, I never thought of it, but if, if I'm at a restaurant getting a call, my incentive is to get them off the phone so I can go back to the people there. You actually can do upsells, you were saying, and it spends the time here so the people in the restaurant can serve the customers that are there. That's right. I guess one thing I was wondering with this is like, sounds like you guys have really look at optimizing every single piece of the business. Like, how do you plan which ones to do in which order? I guess I was wondering, like, it sounds like there's so many different things going on. How do you prioritize at this level that you're at? That's a good question because a couple of things that have happened in our business over the last year is we've had a personnel turnover, really. I rebuilt my executive management team and expanded it from two to three. But I, I went, got rid of the one extra I had and brought on two that were I've just had an incredible increase of capability and experience getting companies to 100 to 500 units that size. And then secondly, we replaced probably two thirds of our director level positions in, and expanded the director level position as well with a lot better focus on culture, training, longevity, turnover, things like that. And so now we we are a very well-focused running machine. We talked last time when we met about scaling up. We live that book. We live that meeting cadence. We look at rocks. We have rock teams. And so those rock teams, we rock set- Rock is like um, a big problem. Yeah, right? it's a big project that has tremendous reward if you focus on it and fix it or build it or whatever the, the point of the rock is. Like our current rocks are new restaurant openings, labor cost- branding. And the third one is our new consumer-facing IT solution, right? So those are the four things we're working on right now. They're usually quarterly in scope. They're tracked weekly, actually they're tracked daily and weekly. And we have rock teams that they focus on those. So there's a team dedicated so, to each of those problems. That's right. Now, and we all come together as well. But so how we set a priority is the executive team, we don't go set the priority. We talk with the directors and the stores on you know what's right, what's wrong, what do we need to improve, where do we have friction in the process, right? Where do we have friction with our guests? Where do we have friction to run a store? How do you get that feedback? We do it through meetings, face-to-face meetings. We do it through surveys. We do an annual employee survey as well. But usually we know most of the problems already just because we have a really good communication level through our general managers and assistant general managers at the stores. To their directors, those directors then let us know, you know, what's working, what's not working. And then we look at the numbers. We know labor is a big issue for us because we're not hitting our labor goals right now. Well, There's a number of hires for that? No, in, in terms of just pure labor dollars at it. So right, we have a goal of, let's say we have a goal of 30% total cost of it being labor, right? Okay. Management and hourly. And if we're at 32, that's a high priority to get that down to 30, right? And so there's a couple of ways to do that. 
You can throw tools at it. You can throw training at it. You can throw better visibility and so forth at it. Or you can raise your top line. And if you raise your top line, that will usually correct because you offset some labor by getting more sales, right? So we've prioritized both those things. We're in new markets. We have new stores. We need to increase awareness while we also build stores and reduce our operating costs as we go. And as we get bigger, that gives us better leverage too. So right now we're biting off a lot, but we have a very, very capable team. How did you choose Chinese food to begin with? I don't know. You probably wouldn't label it as Chinese food too. No, it's more Asian. Yeah. Because we, half the menu is Southeastern Asian. It's not even Chinese, right? So I would say about 30 to 35% of it's Chinese. So I was in high tech for many years and then wanted to get out. I joked that I wanted to get into something you know much easier than high tech. And I picked the restaurant space, which is a bad call. But I was looking around for brands to bring to Austin and a buddy of mine had franchised Moe's Southwest Grill. I didn't think that was the best idea for him because he was taking a product that was developed in Atlanta, which was Tex-Mex, really, right? Uh, kind of I'm a, trying to bring that to Texas. Like Austin, Texas. It's like the home of Tex-Mex, right? And, and I put myself through Texas, you know, working in restaurants. So I knew a lot about so restaurants. So you did work in restaurants? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I did everything from dishwasher to server, bartender, management, and everything. But I never owned one. And so as I was looking around, he did that with Moe's. And I started looking at Moe's. I was like, you know what? I don't think that's a very good idea. And that was true to form. Moses never has failed every time they've ever tried to open it in Texas. So, but in the process of going through that, I saw Mama Foos, that same company that had launched Moe's and then eventually sold Moe's, also launched Mama Foos. And it was kind of a takeoff of Payway, right? It was really a ripoff of Payway. And that's when I became a franchisee. I loved, I loved the brand they, they created, I loved the menu they created. And I felt 10 years ago when I first saw the brand, 11 years ago now, geez, what is, no, it's 13 years ago now than when I first saw Mama Foos. I had just started in Atlanta. And what I loved about it was it, it had so many different components to it that I felt that was where the consumer was going to go. You know, it didn't have bread or cheese on the menu, which I thought was big and had a lot of spice, had numerous varieties of what you can put on the menu because it was a pan-Asian restaurant. I mean, you could have just a Thai restaurant or just Vietnamese, but if you have all five of those main countries or even just Asia in general, you can you have unlimited capabilities as far as the menu goes. I also love the fact that it was mobile. Back then, we used to do about 30, 25 to 30% of our business was off-premise. Now it's 60. You know, yeah, so what was the breakdown of that, by the way? Because I remember you told me before, you were like, yeah. 60% of your money is take out or something? Yeah, they don't even sit in our uh, restaurant. So 40% sits down in our restaurant during lunch and during dinner. The other 60% is takeout, delivery, and catering. Half of it is delivery. About 25% of that, almost the other half, is takeout, and that five delta is catering. I think that's so interesting because sometimes I see restaurants that are empty and I'm like, man, they must be going out of business. I like how you guys have another perspective or Mama Fu's focus, like, hey, actually delivery is where we're going to make a lot of our money. You may not even realize that. Yeah. Interesting. That's really our secret sauce is delivery. Because we kept investing in technology, containers, processes to make it easy for people to take it off premise. Yeah. Inevitably, we kind of changed our own trajectory for the brand. Now that we do 60% takeout, 60% off-premise sales, I don't need stores that have 100 seats. I need a store that has 45 or 50. So now my footprint gets smaller. So spend less than that. I spend less money on rent. And our goal now is to maximize the revenue at a smaller footprint, but also be able to do things like delivery, like catering. Delivery is very difficult to do. Third parties do it all the time now, and that's very common. In fact, third parties in Austin have tripled, quadrupled in the number of uh, people that deliver here in Austin. Yeah. So really, you can get delivery from any restaurant. The differentiator, though, for us is we do our own delivery, as you know. That's more costly. It takes a lot more moving parts and pieces, but I can brand the vehicles. You know, we have those employees. They work for us. They do other things than just deliver food. When a competitor of mine, if you call me for delivery and one of my competitors for delivery, we'll both deliver to you 
and we'll both have the same price. The only difference is my competitor has to pay 20 to 30% of your ticket to a third party to get that food to you, okay? And they can't control the brand. They can't control when you get it. They can't control how that person who gets it to you is going to look or act. Sweaty or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're sweaty. But the thing is, is no matter what that person does or says, it's not the third party that's going to get the negative review. It's your brand that's going to be trashed by that third party that you have zero control over and you just paid them 25 to 30%. I make money every time I do a delivery. I can control that process. I can control the product. I can control the timing. I have the visibility. So for us, and we can do that because... I've got a product that travels well. And people think Asian delivery, Asian delivery, it's like pizza. Whereas maybe barbecue or Mexican food, they can't really have their own delivery because people aren't going to immediately, they'd have to spend a ton of money in marketing to let people know, oh, you should always do takeout for Mexican food. Yeah. Well, that doesn't work too well, you know, especially burgers and the product doesn't hold up as much, you know, because it has cheese and it has bread, which makes things get nasty after a while. So you said, I like this Mama Foos and you just went for it or what happened? So I realized I wanted to get back in the restaurant business. Uh, I saw Mama Foos. I kind of figured the people who run it were unqualified to do it. They were good business people, but they weren't restaurateurs. So I kind of said, well, if I go into this, I'm probably going to be on my own, but that's okay. I'm ready for the challenge. So we did a three-store deal as a franchisee for this area here. I'd worked in high tech while I was developing that oh, real estate. Yeah. So I, I stayed in high tech until right before we opened our third unit, actually. You were running three restaurants and a family and had a full-time job. That's right. And my wife had two kids during that time. I lost my dad to cancer during that time. And it was crazy two or three years. It was 120 hours of work a week, period, because I was doing... All the development, I was building restaurants, I did payroll, I did all the accounting, I did the marketing. You know, I had managers in each store, so I wasn't running each store, but I was running everything above store. How'd you even find people? You're like, while you're- Just my sister is a 20, 30 year restaurant vet and 30 year now, and I brought her down as my first GM. So I had my first store was anchored by my sister who was very, very qualified. And while she was waiting for me to put up my first store, she went and got a job at a competitor. And so she kind of learned the business, learned the menu, and, and really got great experience on that. And then when we opened, that's one reason why we were so successful is because I had such a great team at the beginning. As we got our second one open, that's when we realized we really needed to either rebrand or buy out the franchisor because they were not putting the money and the people behind the brand to truly grow it. And they were sending people out to us to train. And we're like, okay, we're paying you for your brand. I'm not training people that are paying you as well, you know? And we we're having issues with supply and distribution, all these issues. We said we could either break our franchise contract, legally we could, because they weren't supporting us, or we could buy the brand and go be the franchise or, or just own, own all the IP. Wow. So I had a couple of investors, they stepped up to kind of put the seed money in to then go launch the raise to acquire the IP and then literally move the headquarters here and take over the franchise. And so like any regular franchisee, we thought we could do it better. And we have, I guess, you know, so that was seven years ago. Along the way, we made decisions like moving more to off-premise sales and moving to what we call flex casual service. So we do fast casual during the day, order at the counter and the food comes out. But at night we do full service in all of our locations. Yeah, it's a sit down. So people like that more. It's the service model for the customer when the customer needs it and wants it, right? Especially if you have kids or you're out for dinner. Most people don't want to do fast casual at dinner. Fast casual as a segment has stronger lunches than dinners. Not us. We have stronger dinners than lunches. So we did changes like that. We really invested in the infrastructure around delivery, around technology. And now we've invested in the marketing, the branding side of it. We didn't ever do that good a job on the branding side other than kind of the look and the feel of the restaurant and the logo and things like that. What we really needed to do was understand what the brand promises, what the brand pillars are, 
what the positioning statement is, what our voice is. And we've now, we're on the other side of that now. I've got a great new marketing team that kind of led us through this process the last six months. And now we've positioned ourselves really as what we call Asian comfort food. People can eat really healthy at our stores, but they also can get stuff that they used to eat when they were kids, you know, whether it's sweet and sour or Mongolian beef or whatever, you know, and that's really the stuff that sells the most. If you're a marathon runner, there's many things on our menu, right? But the stuff that sells the most is Pad Thai. It's Tom Ka. Oh, really? Yeah, it's things like that that are more hearty, not necessarily bad for you. They just make you feel better, right? You're like, actually, you can get chicken and, and broccoli and really healthy options. Oh, yeah. And so I do wonder as a branding exercise, like, you know, you could either double down on that and be like, we're healthy Chinese or healthy Asian food. Mm -hmm. But you guess you've gone with more of the soul. Yeah, the comfort food part has no real negative or positive connotations to health. We sell vegetables and protein in a sauce. And I mean, really, I mean, you, can, you can cook it in oil or not. And that changes really all that mixture kind of comes together and how good or bad it is for you. What we saw, though, is we could double down on the, hey, get your fresh made, made to order Asian food healthy. But that's only about 15% of our menu, what people order that. In terms of revenue? or in Revenue. 85% yeah. of our menu is everything else. Some of it it's more traditional, more heavier dish. It's what they're ordering. Yeah. And so we kind of, we're doubling down on what's what, working. What's working. Exactly. How did you get the word out in the beginning? Like, how did you get the local stores or like companies like ours to even hear about it? You know, I'm curious, like if I start Noah's hot dogs, how would I get the word out? Or how did you guys? So for us, it was kind of a two-phased thing. Um, we've been doing delivery for eight years now. And the first four or five years, it was really door-to-door. -door. It, was, it was hanging menus on doors. Really? And yeah. That's, that's the best way to do it. Right. But it's got to be something that people want to do. You don't want to try to deliver outside that area. And it takes time to kind of figure that out. So that's the, probably the best way to do it. We also do it through digital marketing is probably a, is a good one as well. So like Facebook ads or something like that? or Facebook, Yelp, Google AdWords. There's a very strong correlation to online ordering and delivery. In fact, most of our deliveries are placed hmm. online, not call-in. I don't know why, but most people calling in are calling in to pick up. People ordering online are calling in to deliver. And so it's just strange how that is. So it's important that our, our applications that handle that process are good. And that's why we're investing in kind of the Mama Foods 2.0 to make frictionless interaction, you know, with our guests on things like that, right? After the first four or five years of delivery, when we launched our own delivery cars, that's when we went from about 15 to 20% of our sales and delivery into where it is today, which is 30%. So that was when the awareness kicked in. There's people that didn't know we did delivery. Now they're seeing these little cars running all over the place and they're like, wow, delivery. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So that was a big part as well. I always think about Starbucks uh, and it's so cool I get to talk to you because like, I'm like, how do they open so many damn stores? You're doing 13 total this year? Uh, no, we're doing 10 total this year. We've done two. We'll have at least six up to eight more this calendar year. Well, it's just interesting because like you started with, you know, two and then three and then you did one, six, you know, kind of, and then now it's like doubling and then doubling. Yeah. Like, how did you know it was ready to start doubling? And then like, I guess I'm curious because even for my online business, like sumo.com or my hot dog business, like, how did you know you're ready to scale? And like, what does that look like so that you can scale like your restaurant business? You're never fully sure if you can scale or not. And so we, in 2014, we felt with our bigger footprint model, 3,000 square feet, that we, we could do enough top-end revenue that we could make enough margin that would get us a above a 30% cash on cash return. And, okay. and that's that's really the entry level for really good growth models is you got to be able to make at least 30%. So if I make 100,000, I want to have a 30% return on that? Or if I invested? The best is, uh, so let's use easy math, cost 500,000 to put a store up and it does a million in sales and 10% margin. That's a five-year return or 20% return. So we try to go for anything north of 30. Oh, okay. We have about a $550,000 startup cost. We think we can get closer to 40% or a little over 40% cash on cash return. 
because we know what our top line can be on our mature stores. We know what our cogs and our labor can be. And it only gets better as we get bigger and throw tools and leverage pricing, things like that at it. So in 2014, we said we can now make a smaller footprint and pick up three or four points of rent as well. As we get bigger, our labor will come in to get much better. Our cost of goods will get much better as we renegotiate deals and have buying power. So we said, okay, let's start growing. So we got prepared to grow. What'd you do to prepare to grow? What do you mean? Oh, raised money. One, we raised money through our existing investor base to say, hey, we've figured it out. Here's what we have. We're going to go with a smaller footprint. We're ready to go. We've tested it. And this is what it did. And we're real happy with it. Adding more capital. Added more capital. And then 2016 really started running. At that point, we realized we've got the right brand. We got the right, mostly the right infrastructure. We got the wrong team. And so we needed to retool the team. And that started right about a year ago from today, maybe 13 months ago. And now we're at the other end of the team has been retooled. And now we're getting the benefits of a much better, well-organized team as well. How do you know the team need to be retooled? Because I do, th- I've noticed that in our business, we've been doing it seven years. We have no stores though. <laughs> uh, no inventory, no delivery cars. That's we a have, fantastic model. It's a, <laughs> no, we, we have literally, it's, it's digital goods. It's zeros and ones. And I have noticed that we've had, I think, three or four phases in our company where the people had it to be, it's not that they were even bad. They were just great for that time. But as yeah. we shifted to new levels, like we need, how did you know that those people needed to be adjusted or upgraded or changed, whatever you want to call it? It first started with my president and CFO. I was president and CEO, and then I had a, a COO, an operator, a very long 40-year veteran in the restaurant space, very qualified person. But I, I had too much on my plate between running the company, running strategy, running everything to do with operations of the company and shareholder relations, capital, all that. So I needed to split that duty and really just do capital and strategy and have someone else really run the day in, day out of the mm. company itself. So I hired Steve Burt. When he came on, he recommended the scaling up methodology to really make sure that we were in the right place to start growing. As we started rolling out that methodology was when we started realizing we've got an issue with management, executive management, as well as in our mid-level directors. So it was partly opening the eyes to our ability to accomplish goals. We couldn't get things accomplished. We were missing deadlines. We didn't have as strong a culture as we had today. Its culture was good. It wasn't great. We had two or three people that were negative impacts on our culture. And so kind of as we started seeing all this, we did our first all-employee survey all the way down to cashiers at the front line. If you were CEO, what would you do? I love that question. Can you say it one more time? That, yeah. that is... If you were CEO, what would you do? So after our last meeting, I loved that so much, I wouldn't implement it in our company. I think I'm, I'm labeled it the anonymous CEO or the self-CEO. Oh, there you go. And that okay. everyone in the company, we have a form now where they can do it anonymously. Oh, like, perfect. you're now the CEO, what would you do? So I want people to come and give the ideas so that, because you always hear people like grumble. Oh, I really, if I was running the company, it's like, yeah, let's do that. You might get some uh, not so great stuff, but you're also going to get some, which is great because sometimes until you ask that question, sometimes you don't know you have a problem in a company, right? And so when we asked that question, it was very apparent we had an issue with our COO. Uh, and we kind of outgrown him. And it came to a point where he couldn't hit the goals and it was his team's fault. That was a problem. And, and then once we did that and I got a different head of operations who is very, very experienced, Mary Orlando, she's been in, you know, in the business 30 years. She was at Noodles and Company, a public company for 10 years. Yeah. Before that, she was at uh, Einstein's and she's just a rock star, right? And so when we got her on, then we really started looking at all the people in all the positions and we had to start making some decisions. We knew where we were going to go. We knew how fast we wanted to go. 
if anyone uh, was unwilling, unable, or couldn't or didn't want to follow us there, then we needed to make a decision. So it was a little bit of a, a cleaning house, to be quite honest. But we've yeah. got some incredible people today, and they're all pretty psyched. And we still have some of the core team left, people that have been here for a long time. But we we don't have time for people that aren't here to perform at a high level. And we don't we have unlimited paid time off. Uh, we don't track it here. We're not you know, clock watchers. You've got a job to do, and if you're not getting it done, it's going to be p- pretty apparent. You're not going to be with us, right? What did you notice when you had like the new? We call them upgrades, but you know the new staff versus in, in these leadership positions. Like, what did you notice that they were doing differently than than the old staff? Hitting deadlines, um, recommending priorities, knowing how to get to the heart of a business matter, and solving that. And they're better teachers, mentors, and coaches, uh, the group we have now versus before. So we just get more stuff done. It's really amazing. And the culture is stronger now. And everyone is, there isn't this uh, drag of negative part. It's, we're all focused. We're all going straight. And part of it's us. We've done a much better job of clearly delineating exactly what we should and shouldn't be doing, what our strategy is, what our execution is. And here are all the steps we're going to do this year, broken down to this quarter, broken down to this period that lead up to all those things. So we're just doing a better job of that. We're not perfect yet, but we're doing so much better at that now. And we're recognizing people more because we, when you're in such growth mode, sometimes you forget the little things and that matter the most. So we're doing a much better job of that. And it's infectious and it's exciting. We've got a lot on our plate, but a lot of the things we're doing are things that are one time. And then in the next three to four months, things are going to calm down a little bit. We'll have all the rest of those infrastructure pieces in place And then we can move forward with uh, things that are more iterative in nature, not just one-time projects, right? Because we also had a learning curve. We've replaced our director of marketing and his whole team. We've replaced our training director, our IT director. We have a new head of call center. She's incredible. She's been with our company for a very long time. And she was just our best customer service person who was then a trainer and now the head of training. And now we put her over there at a call center. But she's got like four jobs over there, you know. And so it's things like that. It's recognizing the right person and teaching, mentoring, and coaching is the best. We do a lot of internal promotion. Uh, So some of the people that took places where people that were promoted from within, people that have a lot of experience with the brand. Uh, But then some people were brought from the outside, people from companies like Noodles, like Chipotle, uh, Smash Burger, um, places like that that have had great growth and they're very strong, solid brands. I think it's a great reminder just for myself and everyone listening where it's like, go find the people who've already done it Oh yeah. that can go at the speed and already can come in and start adding. It sounds like they came in and just started adding value and like taking care of business right away. They really did. And Mary was really the leader of that, uh, Steve and Mary, um, my other two executives in the company. Mary especially because she kind of got in and went through the training process and just openly just say, okay, what all do we need to do? Because she used to run hundreds of restaurants and now she's down to, you know, 20 to 25. And she's like a kid in a candy store because I said, whatever you need, we'll put it in place because we've got to be able to grow to a hundred, right? And have, we need to put the infrastructure in today. So it's things like kitchen display system, like I said, and a stickering system, make sure that we don't forget things on an order. I mean, the good thing about Asian food is that it's a very high quality product that's all handmade, but there's a lot of little side items and, and side egg roll or a side edamame or sauce. And, and it's hard to remember all that stuff. So we have a stickering system now, kind of like Starbucks that basically, oh, if you, yeah, like if you have uh, seven stickers and you've packed the bag and there's a sticker left, well, then you probably missed something, right? You know, so yeah. it's little things like that we've put in the process to avoid missing items. Those are the things we were not very good at was late deliveries and we had missing items. We've put things in place to A, get the visibility of the issue and track it and B, get better at it so to, to reduce it, right? And we, when she came on board too, we started uh, NPS, 
So monitoring a significant amount of customer feedback internally. Now we're getting a bunch of internal feedback. So from customers. From customers. Yeah, would they exactly. refer a friend to eat at the restaurant? That's right, exactly. So we do hundreds, probably four to 500 a week across our system. And so we have a really healthy understanding of how our brand is uh, performing. And this time last year, we were probably in the, the 40s, low 40s. Now we're in the high 60s. And the restaurant industry in general is right about 50. So we're well ahead of the restaurant business in general, which is good, but we want to be right in that right at 70. Anything above 70 is, is rare area. It's exceptional. So we, we want to continue to do that. But we have to, we recognize we need more tools, more processes, more training, more things in place to allow that to occur. Being able to measure things, you know, doing things like theoretical food cost and theoretical prep and educating people in the stores that, okay, it's a Tuesday. This is what last Tuesday we did. And this was Tuesday last year. This is what you're going to sell today. Only prep what you need because you're wasting dollars, you're wasting time, you're wasting money. You know, so things like that, we're just getting better and better. So. You guys are like super advanced or you run the restaurant like a business, right? Yes. Where most people are yes. just running it like a restaurant. I guess I'm curious for like, actually my friend's parents run a Vietnamese restaurant. My other friend has a Greek restaurant in Taiwan. What do you think most mom and pop shops or these independent, what do you think they could do to improve? Like, I think what's been impressive just hearing your story again, I really love how you're like, well, this is a problem. Now let's fix it. And I think a lot of restaurants, maybe they're too busy running the restaurant. They don't have time to fix any of these problems. Yeah. They probably, maybe they don't even know it. I don't know. What, what would you advise if like they came and sat down with you? First, you have to uh, figure out, are they, do they own the restaurant or do they run the restaurant? Because those are two very, very different things. Because if you own the restaurant and you have a manager day to day in there, that's a very different position than if they are the sole proprietor and the operator of it. Because if you're in the mud every day, it's going to be really hard to see what's broken and what's not, right? But there are some things that you can do in either position like that. And it's it, it, the restaurant business is a pennies game, right? And you just got to save a lot of pennies because those pennies add up. I mean, you're not doing anything in the restaurant business that is going to double your margin from one idea. You have to have multiple ideas that increase your, your awareness and your sales and decrease your costs, or at least do things to track your costs better. So I think probably the best thing I would say is do monthly P&Ls. You'd be shocked to know how many business owners don't do a P&L or they don't do inventory, right? If you don't do inventory, how can you manage your costs? It's 30% of everything you do is your cost of goods in the restaurant business. Huh. You know, if you have people in positions that are at a cost level that's high and they're not performing the way you need, replace the person. You have to replace that person because A players want to be with A players. And inevitably, if you have a team of a few A's, a few B's, some D's, some a, you lose credibility as the owner. So try to hire the best possible team. Even if you're paying more for those people, uh, you will increase productivity, decrease errors and increase consistency, customer sat and everything. And then your culture goes up, right? It's not just one, one thing. thing. So there's it's basically a lot, a lot of little things, things that need yeah. to keep. Yeah. And I think probably one of the most likely answers is that if you're spending your whole day running the business, you don't have time to actually operate and grow the business. That's exactly right. Don't let the business run you. You need to run the business. Yeah. yeah. So, and see it from above that, right? Even with our company, I've taken a step back. So there's like, we have two major products. We have AppSumo.com, which is a Groupon for Geeks, mm -hmm. and uh, Sumo.com, which is uh, free marketing tools, free, mostly to grow email lists. And now there's two guys running it, right? And so because I've been able to step back, it's interesting because you ever, I don't know, you hire a lot of business coaches. That's something we talked about before and, and consultants. I have a, we have an advisor that meets once a month and because he's only once a month, his opinions are very different than the day to day and then the week to week and the hour to hour. And he doesn't care, right? He's like, well, this is my opinion because I see it from this point of view and yeah. it's actually been really helpful. So for me, even taking that step back, I'm like, well, why are we doing this? It's like, I don't know. That's how we always do it. Okay. Now that's something that maybe we should consider. Having a, someone like that who can challenge uh, things 
really do help you open your eyes. But you do, you've got to be working on your business, not in your business to be able to see it, right? And for many, many years, I was I was deep in working on my business or working, sorry, working in my business. And yeah. now I've been able to get to a level because of the people we've hired, because of the things we're doing today, we can work on the business instead of in the business. And then when we when I talk with our business coach, we're talking about things you know, strategy, you know, and you've got to have time. You've got to take time to strategize. I mean, that's, if you're not strategizing in business, why are we doing it? Right. And and I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned over the last year is you've got to take time out as a business leader to step back from the details of the business really good. and look at it. I mean, you need an hour to go walk around the lake. You need an hour to just get everything out of your mind and think about where your business, where you want it in five years, where you want it in three years. And then what are the critical things you need to get done to get that differentiator, right? And because then you got to start, well, then work back from it. Okay. How long is it going to take? What are the pieces you need? What's the capital you need, the people you need, and things yeah. like that. I never had time to do that before. Or I never, I never made time to do that before. And so in essence, you kind of hit your goal doing this. And I want to now do that, you know? And so that's I've I've learned a lot from that standpoint. You know, it's funny, I was talking with uh, Michael from Cafe Medici, he's the founder of that. And what was really interesting about him, and I'm curious your take, is that like whenever people used to talk about vision and mission, I'd always be like, that sounds like you're full of shit. Not you. But people in general, I'm like, why do you have a vision? What do you have a mission? And the more that as I've matured and the more I've, I've run our business and thought about business, he actually was like, yeah, my vision when I started this was to have five cafes and one roastery. And he's like, five years later now, I have five cafes and I'm building my roastery. And it really made me start wanting to reflect on that and think about that. And I was curious your take. So for like Sumo in five years or 10 years, like what is my clear vision? And then now how to, you know, I execute to get to that as efficiently as possible. Yeah. What did you have in the beginning of Mama Foods? And then, you know, where is that now? When we began, we were so much more focused on franchising, right? And so uh, the original focus was, okay, let's do 10% company owned units and have 90% franchise focus, which the pro to that is you don't have to have a lot of capital to run a franchise business, right? You need some, of course, but you're not paying for each location to be built. You're paying to help the other people build them, right? And then run them. So that was the pro to that vision. The con to that vision is that's really difficult to do, especially because we didn't want to franchise uh, many people in Texas. So to help somebody else run their business, we needed to get on a plane. And that became very difficult. And we tried mom and pop type franchise partners. And we tried everything to the biggest $100 million company type franchise partners. Both were not good franchise partners. The mom and pop they wanted you to run their business for them, right? Because they didn't have the experience. They wanted to put in cash and then magically make just, money. You just make money, right? And and then the big companies, though, they didn't give the enough time and visibility and uh, energy to the concept to truly get it to grow because they had other things that were more important. It was such a tiny thing, you know? So neither one of them was a good fit. At the same time, we had very little control. And what we saw, though, in our corporate stores, we could control everything and we could implement things faster and we could operate better and we could control our growth and our quality and everything like that. So we kind of left the franchising side and brought in the focus and, and then changed to company owned. So really, you know, seven years ago, I had a five-year vision of, you know, 75 to 80 franchise locations. Well, mm. now, five years later, seven years later, my five-year plan is that same vision, but more from a, a company owned. And then from a personal standpoint in current investors, within our five-year window, closer to three, we'll exit the business to somebody else who can take it, you know, from 75 to 100 units to 500, you know. So that's, we're trying to to build the company so that it's most attractive to be that next layer of, of ownership that's going to get it to multi-hundreds. So that's most of the things that we're focused on right now. I need to get something stronger like that. I love that. And then last thing, so I, I want to hear more just like the playbook. So like, how do you open a restaurant? Like even opening one sounds insane, but you guys are opening 10 in a year, which you know, and next year you'll open maybe 20. I don't know what the number is. And then to you, it's now like a just normal thing. But I, to me, you have to find this restaurant and do it. Like, 
what does that look like? I guess I was, I, we asked earlier, but I, just, I was curious to just hear like, sure. does it take like a month? How long does it take to find a location? Wow. Yeah, I'd say it takes probably about 18 months per location from like, on average. From ID, like, hey, yeah. we're going to be in this location mm -hmm. and use mm -hmm. data for that? Do you use like... We do. Yeah, we have a couple different things. So first it's, you got to know who your customer is and you can use data and surveys and stuff to really understand not just your demographic of your customer, but the psychographic. So we have demographics that were alike or similar or, or dissimilar, right? Uh, where we live, uh, how old we are, what ethnicity we are, what sex we are, all that kind of stuff. Psychographic is very different. Psychographic is, I don't care what you look like, I don't care where you live, what you do, what do you spend your money on? And hmm. that's really important. So we look at both. Where do you get that from? There's many data companies out there that you give them your your kind of your customer profile and then they they run models on here's your customer here's your a customer your b customer your c customer oh, here's the highest concentration of those around this area and then you try to go oh, i want to go there because it's really red on my customer right or this one over here is eh, it's kind of pink it's not as much of my customer there's a lot of people that aren't my customer yeah. and so part of that is data driven part of it is just you know trial and error right not everything is going to work and there, there's other factors. So that's the first thing you do is, is you say, okay, where do I want to go? Who's my customer? What cities are doing well? What cities are growing? What have good customer bases? What have good pricing for labor and things like that? And then you bounce that against uh, availability of, you might say, hey, I want to go to Maine and Maine in Houston, but the fact of the matter is there isn't any real estate. And even if there was, I wouldn't, I couldn't pay for it. It's too expensive. So you have to have a really a strategy, a market strategy. You get a broker uh, for that particular area. And then at that point, it the game changes to you get a lease and then you have to, you got to pay for it, right? So there's a capital part to that. But then there's also part of the game in the restaurant space is can't throw a million dollars at something that should only cost 600, right? Because um, then you could build almost two restaurants. A good, efficient opener of stores can open two to one on people that aren't that good at it. If it takes too long to open, you're not picking the right teams to help you. You're not picking the right vendors to get the best possible quality and service to get equipment and IT and, yeah. and all these things. We've done a pretty good job of that over the years. And we've just gone through another cycle of, okay, here's the last seven openings, eight openings, where do we still have more opportunity, whether it's buying power, negotiation, uh, shrinking time. As we open more stores in Houston, I have less and less of my team coming from Austin to be down there for two oh, or three weeks. So now ground costs get reduced because so now I can support that store from Houston itself. So it's things like that. Uh, and you get better and better. Uh, we think we can get our startup cost down another thirty dollars or $40,000, which is huge for us. It juices our cash on cash return. So we're working on getting that done, getting our margin higher, right? Through tools and education and awareness, because we got to get our top line sales up, yeah. especially in new markets where we don't really have the awareness. We're kind of building out and usually it takes about three years to get a mature store. You know, some do well right when you first open them, but others, you know, it might take a year, two years to really get to the volume that you want. Until then, you got to carry those costs of that store and that asset until it's performing how you want. It's in process. So if you identify a piece of dirt, you might open it in 12 months, 12 to 18 months on the other end. For us, we're not building the structure. We're building out the internal of the structure. So we have, to a certain extent, we have to wait for the landlord of the, the developer of the property to get their side done first before they can even deliver to us to then us start our three-month turn on getting that thing open to business. But it's a pretty tight process. It's a very detailed, thousand-step, you know, it's in like, our, in like our playbook you have. Oh, yeah. yeah. New, new restaurant opening process. We use uh, a product called Visual Lease, which literally has business process management in it, and it's tied to our GL. Uh, it's really for any business that has a, a startup, or it's really more of retail, retail yeah. or a restaurant. So we model all the steps that go into opening a restaurant, and then it 
notifies parties and it's a kind of a diminishing budget as well that's tied to our GNL. So it's a great tool that we use that we're just now really getting the full benefit of because it took about a year to put it in place. So we use that to really track all those things. You know, we used to do it in Excel, which is fine. It's just, well, yeah, it's that's not like, as I still do it in Excel. Yeah. It's not, it's just not as easy uh, because you're dealing with multiple people and you need to communicate to these people and you're trying to also match it against your budget. And then, so we've gotten a lot better at it. Now we've got a person dedicated to that process now too, which really helps because before it was, here's an ops person who kind of also helps open up restaurants. Well, now I've got a, a construction design person. I have a facilities person as well. So now we're just so much more sophisticated on yeah. doing that. And now we can also scale. We opened 11 last year in the calendar year. And we look at that and we go, okay, that was heavy, right? Because we also flipped our team over during that time, right? But the team I have now and the knowledge we took out of last year as we've implemented to this year, I won't open 11 this year. I'll open probably eight to 10. But as we put in PE less than a year from now, I could potentially do 15 to 20 next year because I've got the people and the processes in place to scale that growth versus before it was kind of making the ship get wobbly, right? Yeah. And so now we can do that, you know, because we've got all these things in place and the people in place know how to do it. Do you know the moment that you recognize that it was ready to scale or the timing like, all right, look, the margin is this and like, holy shit, I, this is, we've got something. Do you remember that? Well, it was the beginning of 15 because in 14, we didn't have that good a year. We only opened one unit and it was our first attempt at a small unit. And we went from 3,000 square feet down to like 1,400. And we couldn't get any dine-in business. We didn't have any seats, right? So it was kind of like, ah, oh, crap. Okay, we're selling a lot of takeout and delivery, but we're not selling enough to make this thing a profitable, scalable model. So it was almost like Goldilocks. It was 3,000 too big, 1,400 too small. Let's go try 2,000. And it's gotten to right about 2,100, 2,200 square feet. When we tried that, we opened that up in mid, like early 15. And that's when everything really started coming together because we made really good money at that level. And we had good dine-in business. So there was enough space for people to sit down and eat. We were getting um, great traction from launching our cars at that point. Uh, we were 20% same store sales. And that was when we were like, okay, I think we've got something here. You know, we knew we could sell food, but can are you ready to go? And so we said, hey, let's go raise some money. Let's go fill the pipeline because it takes months and months and months to fill a pipeline of, of deals. And then you close those deals from a real estate standpoint oh, through sure. legal and everything. So it's about a 12-month climb up to that. And then so 15 was a great year. 16 was okay. also, it was, it was a tough year because we re doubled down. We changed our team, literally, as we opened up a lot of stores. The most you've ever opened. The most we've ever opened up. So, I mean, Steve, who just popped his head in, he likens last year to, you know, we changed tires on our race car, like in a turn in the Indy 500. Like we didn't even go in a pit. We just yeah. changed it like while in the middle of the race. And so this year is much more calm and steady and but we need to get to that that growth because we owe it to our investors to get them a return on their cash so we're not i mean if this was just my company i probably wouldn't be growing as fast but i gotta grow so i can get them a, a very nice return on their capital right i guess as you've gone through good and bad times like how have you dealt with the bad times like mentally i was curious because like you had that the first year you're working all these jobs all these hours yeah. and you had a tough 14 and then 16 you're replacing stuff like how have you dealt with the i don't know negativity or like the challenge for your in, in yourself well number one i'm an optimist okay you got to be an optimist to be an entrepreneur because it's an emotional roller coaster all the time the highs are really high the lows are low but you know, I don't know. I think when, when things aren't going the way I want them, I tend to lean in even more uh, to get them the way I need them. You know, it's kind of like water. Water finds a way. Water will always find a way to get where it needs to go. I think that's a lot of our will here and my will personally, as well as that of the team. If we hit a wall, we go around it. If we hit another one, well, then we go the other way. And we will we'll continue to push forward to figure out the best thing. And it, I could have probably made more 
uh, traction if we had figured things out a little bit quicker with the team and things like that. But that's just the nature of business, right? I mean, you you look back and you go, oh, God, I wish I'd have known that two years ago. And I'm not someone who really looks back and goes, you know, has any regrets by any means. A lot of it's a learning cycle. And sometimes it takes years and years and years for people to really understand how a business works and how who the customer is and where it goes. A lot of these overnight sensations in the restaurant business, they're not overnight sensations. You look back on them and, and it's like, oh, well, that, that first one was launched 20 years ago or yeah. it was 15 years ago or 13 years ago, 10 years. There are very few restaurants that take off in a couple of years. It's just, it's a very methodical learning business where you have probably as many failures as you do successes on a micro level. Yeah, That dish didn't work. That one worked really well. That location didn't work. These four did. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just one of those things. But it's a literally, I feel like I get my MBA every year because you yeah. deal with every business acumen, if not every day, certainly every week. I mean, it's literally, it's one of the few jobs out there that you hit every type of business acumen out there. You know, it's rewarding from that standpoint, but a lot of moving parts and pieces. So I do want to switch house. I'll do one more minute. Uh, two questions. One, if I, I'm going to have our company order from you guys. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the dish that we should get from Mama Foods? What's just, like the signature one that? You'd recommend our team order? I would say the two are, for a noodle dish, I would say the pad thai. That's our number one noodle dish out there. It's a phenomenal dish. For the non-noodle dish uh, and a lighter one would be the lemon sriracha. Uh, Lemon sriracha is fantastic. You said you would have grown it slower if it was just you, right? And I've thought about that because I've actually tried to get funding for my company twice. And and this sounds kind of I mean childish, but I felt like they hurt my feelings. And they were like, I'm like, dude, you guys don't know my business. It's going well. And they were just kind of rude about it, the investors. And I get from their point, they're like, no, I'm going to give you money. I want my money back. That is all I care about. Yeah. I guess I was curious like, why you decided to take the money and then you know, why would you want to grow slower by yourself if you didn't uh, take the money? Anytime you take in private investment or investors of any kind, right? You have a fiduciary obligation and I have a very personal obligation to maximize their return in the minimum amount of time. You know, so I think that's probably it. It's just, I, would, I don't know if our growth is directly associated with gaining value and getting their money back. So I, I want to I wanna live up to what I promised them, right? So I don't know if I'd be going as fast if it was just me funding it, maybe because because of the fact that I have the full control of, of when we exit, right? I say that, that's not literal. We have a board, obviously. Yeah. But, so I think I mean it from that standpoint is, you know, I, I want to grow at a quick pace so that we can flip the asset and give them a return. That's really the sole thing. And, and maybe I'd still go as fast. Well, I know I certainly wouldn't go as fast without them because I wouldn't have the capital, right? So that's probably yeah. you know probably a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy there, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's why we went out to, to get outside capital. And then, but that private investor capital or that we've done through just PPMs over the years, we're going to bring on an institutional investor uh, within the year uh, that will be a growth round uh, that then accelerates us to an exit for everybody. You know, so that's kind of the goal in three years from now, three and a half. I'll let you uh, finish up your thing. Hey, dude, good seeing you. Yeah, good seeing you too. um, It's an amazing story. Thank you. That's a wrap. I hoped you liked the episode. If you did, go eat at Mama Foo's. Go eat their food. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's make some dumplings together. And before you go, let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing podcast at okdork.com. I may actually check this email address. Also, remember to go sign up for AppSumo.com newsletter. It's free. It's got good deals, good prices. If you like software and growing your business, you'll love it. AppSumo.com. And a final special thanks to Jason at PodcastTech.com. As always, for making these podcasts sound so dope. And thanks to Sean, David, and Dean at The Dork Team. Also, special shout out to listener Daniel Yu at Sumo this week. Love you, dog. Keep up the good work. What do you prefer? Android? or iPhone.